Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we can come to your word this morning. We're in our homes. We're seeking to know you. We want the joy, the peace, the purpose that only you can put in our lives. Bless the time we spend in the word. May the spirit be guiding us and strengthening us. May we be humble before you. May we take great hope that you've prepared a place for us, something so much better. Forgive us when we've been satisfied with what's here. And now, Lord, I pray, help us to hear what you're saying and follow how you're leading. In Jesus' name, amen. Entitled my message this morning, COVID-19, the end or the beginning? Now, I've inserted this message into this series. I'll continue with the series. It will be expanded by one because of this message, but I've inserted it for a reason. Different ones of you have sent me things to look at. Thank you for doing that. Please don't stop. Uh, when I receive these things, I, I try to look at them. But in this past week, I've encountered two things which have troubled me, and I don't want the devil being able to trouble you. Both of them have been conspiracy theories, both of them relating to documents written down ahead of time. One is a scientific postulation of how some kind of uh, viral uh, destruction can be wreaked upon the world and upon nations. The other was a governmental plan. Both of them relate to elements of previous foresight and they've both been given, at least by their elevation, some measure of credibility that we ought to be paying attention to them. I'm here to tell you this morning that there is not a conspiracy theory outside of the scriptures which ought to get our attention. Conspiracy theories have the power to rob us of faith and courage to falsely suggest that someone else is in control and that inside information about the dark side is the journey to the light side. This is not true to the scriptures, and I'm going to show you this this morning. As a matter of fact, the Bible does explain there's a conspiracy going on. It takes us behind the scenes in Revelation chapter 12, and it tells us, it's augmented in the story of redemption, if you'd like to read this book, The Great Controversy, it tells us how the devil went around lying about God. That lie came down to the earth. The lie embodied Lucifer, who spoke through a serpent. The scriptures have been the light that are revealing what's going on in the dark places. But the scriptures never direct us to the dark side to understand the light side. I want to show you this. Take your Bibles this morning and open up to the book of Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. Is COVID-19 the end or the beginning? In Exodus chapter 1, we have the end of a conspiracy or the beginning of a conspiracy, however you'd like to name it. Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, but the sons of Israel were faithful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. This is a promise of a blessing on Abraham. It's interesting that Abraham's next two generations struggled with the idea of being fertile. And yet finally, when things began to happen, we see an amazing fulfillment of the promise. But Abraham had to wait and look by faith. But when we come down to the death of Joseph, and we're now with a new king over Egypt, verse 8, who did not know Joseph, verse 9, he said to his people, behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mighty than we. Come, let us deal wisely or shrewdly with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them. There is some kind of underhanded dealing going on here that robs the Israelites of their liberty, of their freedom, of their dignity. But let's follow it backwards through the scriptures. Go back to Genesis chapter 47, and let's see exactly how some of this began to be fulfilled. How did Pharaoh come to the position where he held so much power? Interestingly enough, it's a storyline that's surrounded by divine intervention with Joseph. 
It says in Genesis 47, verse 20, so Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. So here we are in probably the seventh year of the plague. It's towards the end, and they've run out of things to sell. And Joseph buys all the land of Egypt for every Egyptian sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. Thus the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he removed them to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other. Only the land of the priests did he not buy, for the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh, and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, he did not sell their land. Now, this reduces much of the nation of Egypt to serfdom. And before, it appears that the Pharaohs had not consolidated their power by this, like this, but God giving Joseph this dream actually strengthens the hand of Pharaoh in anticipation of his taskmaster uh, deployment upon the Israelites. You could actually trace, if you wanted, somewhat of a devious dynamic through the divine plan, if one show, should show, choose to look at it this way. The Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges comments on Genesis 47, 20, where Joseph bought all the land like this. This transaction by which, at a single stroke of business, Joseph the Hebrew was said to have purchased for Pharaoh the whole land of Egypt and all the people to be Pharaoh's slaves as the price of seed corn, probably sounded in the ears of ancient Oriental people as a masterpiece of cleverness. But in our days, it ranks as an outrageous piece of tyranny. The, the king's grand vizier, taking advantage of his own monopoly in corn and of the people's destitution, should deprive them of the last shreds of their independence. I want to make a point. My point is this. God reveals details about what's going on behind the scenes and God actually allows evil men a measure of ability to carry out plans that coincide with the general move of salvation history. Now go back farther in your Bible to Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, we have God speaking to Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, looking especially at verse 13. In the midst of a divine encounter with these sacrifices, God says to Abraham, verse 13, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. There is nothing dark that is not light to God. He sees it all. He sees it all about our lives. He sees about where we're going and where we've come from. He knows where the general strokes of salvation history are trending. And it is not for us to probe deep into the darkness to try to further elucidate God's word. Satan is behind every conspiracy and God is in front of every deliverance. And our focus is not only to be on our own deliverance by some inside track of information. Our journey is to be on the, the call to an invitation to a relationship that gives deliverance to all people. Israel didn't lose its freedom by some man-made conspiracy. Israel lost its freedom by circumstances that were outside of any man's total control. God had destined that the story of Israel would reveal in again the chapters of the devil's intent to rob us of our liberty and our freedom. It would be a setup for a story of deliverance that would mark the faith of Israel forever. Yes, even to this day. So let's talk about something else, global warming. For many, it's a conspiracy. It's a political structure not based on science. Just, just tune into different radio programs. If you're on the left, it's the end of the world. If you're on the right, it doesn't even exist. But I want to assure you that whether it's a man-created uh, phenomena or whether it is absolute pure science, it is being utilized the fear surrounding it is being capitalized for the sake of moving people into a hurtable, voluntary release of their liberties. And this May 14 meeting that was to be held by the Pope to re-educate society on how we're going to have to live now that we're becoming a global and very, uh, some would say, irresponsible with the use of our resources and the disparities between rich and poor. It's being capitalized on. Will it be utilized to rob God's people of a measure of liberty? Probably. It's been bumped out to the month of October now. But the truth of the matter is, is that Ellen White 
would write how Satan had, has tainted the air. Should we be surprised then that we see these kinds of things developing? God is not caught off guard. Satan himself is poisoning our atmosphere. And it's important for us to understand this. If Ellen White could see that it was coming, does it really matter how man is utilizing it? Of course we should stand up for what's true and right. But trying to understand a conspiracy beyond the details of the Word of God can put us in a situation where we're looking to darkness to find light and we're deepening fear where we should be strengthening faith. So if there's one thing I'm seeking to do in this series on confidence in crisis is show you there is no man-made preparation save for a very few things that I'm going to talk about at the end of this message in preparation for the crisis of the end. Most of the elements are spiritual. Most of them have to do with an increased faith and a deeper interest and investment in the Word of God. But whether we look at Elijah who ran out of food over and over again or whether we look at Elisha, who was surrounded by the enemy, even though God had given him an inside track on what the enemy was doing, or whether it's Esther, who watches political intrigue work for the potential demise of a whole nation, genocide. God is not caught off guard. Our sufficiency will not be in being smarter or better planned or better strategists than the conspirators. Our sufficiency is going to be in a living relationship with a living Christ who comes down to shepherd his people through earth's most traumatic moments. The conspiracy is a secret plan by a group to do something unlawful. It's important for us to understand that this is the battle lines in which human beings are always finding themselves. God himself must intervene. Biblical conspiracies. I'd like for us to turn in our Bibles to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 6. Perhaps one of the most devious of all conspiracies. Daniel chapter 6. He's an old man, and yet his life in Christ is still yielding rich fruits. He's like that tree planted in the house of the Lord. He's bearing fruit. He's green and full of sap even to his old age. It says in verse 3 of chapter 6, Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and the satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Whether it was jealousy or raw political ambition, whatever motivated these men, we know it was dark and devious. They decided not only to move Daniel out of the way, but to destroy Daniel as a person, an older gentleman. And so they begin working the levers of Persian law to create a decree about worship that will land Daniel in the lion's den. It appears that Daniel is not without understanding, and we shouldn't be surprised. A man of this caliber in whom there is an extraordinary spirit. This is what I want everyone listening to me today to recognize. You will not have an extraordinary spirit if you're feeding on these conspiracy theories. You will simply have the spirit of the ones who are pulling back, they should say, the, the, the covers on the conspiracy. You'll just start looking like and sounding like those that have the airwaves or the internet venues for communicating. This is not the spirit of Daniel, and it is not the spirit of God's people who have a Daniel-like experience in the end of time. We have an extraordinary spirit because tidings from the east, tidings from the west, they don't trouble us. We have a confidence in a living Christ, and with Jesus in the vessel, we can smile at the storm. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He knows how many times our heart going to beat, how many respirations we're going to have. He knows everything about the trillions of cells in our bodies. He knows everything about our ancestry and our future. There is an extraordinary spirit in God's people. They are not moving by fear. They are not looking to the darkness to find light. And this is an exceptionally important element. It is not that we know more about what's wrong. It's that we know more about what's right and the author of light. And so this morning, I'm appealing to us to have this extraordinary spirit. But when you're a man of this caliber, you can be certain that in Daniel's political career, there were a number of other people who responded to that spirit, and he was well aware of what these other satraps and political governors were up to 
Verse 10, now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, so Daniel knows about the document. And when Daniel knows that it's signed, he entered his house, now in the root chamber, he had a window open towards Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day. Now I want to show you what a man with an excellent spirit does. A man with an excellent spirit doesn't cast about fear for people so that they need to be focusing on all the, the experts in the arenas of the shadows. No, a man with an excellent spirit points people to God. And when you come to the moment when the king can't deliver Daniel, the king follows, goes with Daniel out to the lion's den, verse 16. Then the king gave orders... And Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve constantly, will himself deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den. That night the king goes back to his palace. He can't rest. He can't sleep. All he can do is think. You can be sure at some level this God who would confess the power of Daniel's God was probably prayed. What a, a nascent or new experience this was for him to actually enter into a relationship with the unseen God. There was nobody that you could see that went down into the lion's den, but there were angels by Daniel's testimony that came that night and shut the mouths of the lions. Is that extraordinary spirit in you, friends? Is your confidence in Christ growing? Is COVID-19 made you more afraid, or is it giving you a new holy boldness that what was written by the pen of inspiration that the final movements will be rapid ones could actually be true. Now I'm here today to proclaim to you that Jesus wants to wake the world up. Why else would we have these kinds of warnings or judgments? God has no interest in the destruction of the wicked, but rather that he should turn from his wicked ways and live. God has not greased the skids for destruction by starting us down a road in which there'll be no opportunity for a warning to be given. COVID-19 is not the end. It is the opportunity for a new beginning. God does not desire to destroy anyone. As a matter of fact, he always gives a warning. At least this is what is written in the Desire of Ages. After he has given the signs of his coming, Christ said, when you see these things come to pass, know that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Take ye heed and watch and pray. Then she comments, God has always given men warning of his coming judgments. Those who had their faith in his message for their time and who acted out their faith in obedience to his commands escaped the judgments that fell upon the disobedient and the unbelieving. It's very important for us to understand. She writes also, uh, but before the day, God warns men of what's coming. He has always given men warning of coming judgments. Some believed the warning and obeyed. These escaped the judgments that fell upon the disobedient and the unbelieving. COVID-19 is the third of at least three very painful birth pangs in the last generation. We had 911. Airplanes crashing into building, killing thousands of people. I can assure you as a pastor on the Sabbath following 911, the church was unusually full. The question will be, what will happen when COVID-19 passes? Will the church be unusually full or will we simply be in another moment of getting used to the things that we shouldn't get used to? 2008, when the financial institutions almost came crashing down. We could have had a day that made October 1929 looked like child's play because it could have been global on a scale and a depth that nobody had ever seen before. Yes, 911, 2008, and now March and April of 2020. God's at work trying to wake us up, trying to remind us that this world is not our home. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Luke. The book of Luke, I want to look for a moment at the elements of Jesus' warning. The book of Luke, chapter 21, verses 20 to 23. Luke chapter 20. Now Matthew speaks of these things, and Luke speaks of these things. Their descriptions are very similar. They each recorded 
slightly different elements of Jesus' warning. I want to look at Luke first, and then we'll go to Matthew. Luke chapter 20, 21 actually, beginning with verse 20. Jesus is giving warnings, and one of the warnings he gives is this. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are the days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. This is a biblical example of what God does to wake and warn his people. The spirit of prophecy will declare that what happens in the experience with the Jews in their anticipation of the destruction of Jerusalem is typological or symbolically representative of what the, we can expect at the end of time. So let's turn back over to Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is leaving the temple. He's coming to a moment in which he has to bring a sober awareness to his disciples. Verse 1, Matthew 24, Jesus came out of the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to them. And he said to them, do you see all these things? Truly I say unto you, not one stone will be left upon another which is not going to be torn down. And he was sitting on the Mount of Olives later in the day. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and various places there will be famines and earthquakes. Luke will add pestilences, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. I want to take a moment and talk with you about birth pangs. How does that work? For those of you that are parents, you understand there's a moment in time in which much learning is going to take place. God gives us the privilege of raising his children. I can remember when my Firstborn was on his way. Uh, there's an amazing moment when you sense there's a little life inside of the mother. She feels him, at least in this case it was him, she feel, felt the baby moving before I could. Eventually I could lay my hand and feel the baby moving himself. There are those moments when you think the baby's on the way. As a matter of fact, our son, firstborn, was son April, born April 23, 1990. We went to the hospital, though, about a week ahead of time. You know, being newbies and all, not understanding everything. We read, we prepared. You can be sure we prepared, maybe over-prepared. But how do you prepare to discern what the pangs of deliverance feel like when it's the first time? Oh, we walked the hospital. They kept us for a little while, and then they sent us home. And about a week later, more than a week later, we went back for the real thing. This time, when those pangs of deliverance sat in on my wife, there was an intensity and a certainty that this was going to move to a final deliverance. We need to understand that Christ has spelled out a variety of spiritual dynamics that are going to shape the final contortions of this world, the final convulsions. And when we look at the experience with COVID-19, we can be certain that God is looking to arouse the interest of the world to the fragility of life. God's looking to make people aware to the neglect of spiritual things. But I think it would also be important for us to understand that in the midst of this warning, God's looking to do something. He's looking to arouse interest. It's not his desire that the, the skids of prophetic judgment be greased and we rush into the final moments. God's actually looking in this pang of deliverance to actually open the desire for a greater deliverance and a focus on the divine. I want to take a few moments and remind you of certain things that have to come into play before we find ourselves in the magnifying glass under the intense heat 
of where God is leading the prophetic showdown. If you're in the book of Matthew, look at verse 11. Not too, farther, not too much farther along, we find evidence of how this thing's going to work its way up to an intensity. Jesus says, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. You need to understand, when we look at the pen of inspiration, the writer is quite clear that the most intense dynamics between light and darkness, good and evil, will happen in the United States. Why? Because the United States was once a nation based upon the principles of the Scriptures with the prophetic spirit in her midst and a focus on the truth. While these things will be global in their effect, the greatest intensity and the greatest focus will be in the United States of America. You can check that out on your own. Nonetheless, it's important for us to understand that America still remains predominantly a very secularly focused nation. All spiritual in proclamation in so many ways. Unfortunately, the power of the modern church, especially the modern Protestant church, has very little effect on culture and society. That's why we see these escalating dynamics of dysfunction. Yes, indeed, secular mentalities exist inside the church. Churches have been turned into quasi-spiritual businesses. Pragmatism and marketing and business mentalities rule the day. The convicting voice of conscience the power of God's word to arrest collectively the mind of a nation and a society has largely faded into the distance. It's important for us to understand COVID-19 is a wake-up call, but there are many other dynamics yet to come into place that aren't there yet. This secular mentality has not yet heard, as was evidenced in 911. There were a few preachers who dared to suggest that 911 was a judgment of God on America, but they were hushed into silence. We've not heard this yet at all about COVID 19. Oh, I'm not saying nobody's saying it anywhere, but there's very little. There is no major shift away from a secular paradigm or a secular lens to interpret what's going on to what really constitutes the issues of the end, which are, is a spiritual showdown over the Word of God, the law of God, and the worship of God. It's important for us to keep this in mind because it's possible we could get COVID-19 in our rearview mirror and just go back to living life as we lived it. But if you've ever read what she says about the final movements being rapid ones, all of us should have a greater attentiveness to the elements of prophecy. And we should be refocused with a new attention on the study of God's word for an enlightenment of our hearts and our minds. In early writings, the writer also states that there will be a true revival amongst God's people and a false revival. I saw that God has honest children, she writes, among the nominal Adventists and the fallen churches. And before the plague shall be poured out, ministers and people will be called out of these churches and will gladly receive the truth. Satan knows this. And before the loud cry of the third angel is given, he raises an excitement in these religious bodies. Friends, that excitement is not in place today. I'm not saying there's no spiritual interest in our world, but I'm here to tell you that the kind of excitement that will be the competitor or the false identity that stands in place of the true experience of God is not in place. That those who would have rejected the truth may think that God is with them. That's why there's this false excitement. He hopes to deceive the honest and lead them to think that God is still working in the churches. But the light will shine and all who are honest will leave the fallen churches and take their stand with the remnant. Before the final visitation, there's a true revival. Before the final visitation of God's judgments on the earth, there will be among the people of God such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. The spirit and power of God will be poured out upon his children. And at that time, many will separate from those churches in which the love of the world has supplanted the love for God and his word. Many, both of ministers and people, will gladly accept the great truths which God has caused to be proclaimed. So before this happens, you have a false revival that stands to substitute itself for the true revival. Interestingly enough, in 1882, there was some kind of religious agitation in California, and Ellen White writing about it in Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, will say that the time is coming when we can't sell at any price. 
The decree will soon go forth prohibiting men to buy or sell of any man save him that had the mark of the beast. Then she goes on to say, we came near having this realized in California a short time since, but this was only a threatening of the blowing of the four winds. Yes, friends, I am suggesting today, while I cannot predict the future, I can show you. And by the way, for those of you that are watching or will watch, Get online and order yourself a copy of this compilation called Last Day Events. Read it. Inform yourself. These things are not hidden away and hard to discover. Everything I'm going to show you today, you can find in, in some principle or in actual sentiment and precept right here in this book. It's, it's the aid of having the testimony of Jesus, which is the gift of prophecy. We're not walking through the future in a fog. While not all things are plainly spelled out, many are. But she says in California, we almost came to a place where we saw these kinds of uh, lockdowns, physical, financial inactions. But she says this was only the threatening of the blowing of the four winds, as of yet they're held by the four angels. And then she writes these five words, we are not just ready. I'm quite confident as a minister of the gospel for the last three decades, quite familiar with not just my own church, but many churches, that the same could be written about us today. We're not ready, and God knows we're not ready. That's why this birth pang is a wake-up call. There's a work yet to be done, she writes. Then the angels we bid to let go, that the four winds may blow upon the earth. I want to talk to you for a moment about one of the devil's final instrumentalities at the time of the end. Spiritualism will be one of the threefold forces that unites to deceive the world. Its manifestation will be largely seen in the supposed phenomena of the dead coming back to life. There will be manifestations that without an understanding of the Word of God will overwhelm the senses and people will fall into deception and experience that's very sensual, even spiritually sensual. It is it is almost tangible. Metaphysical, no. It now becomes real. They saw it. They heard the person. I'm here to tell you that while the workup, the siege is on relative to the truth about the, sin, the sinner who sins will die, the soul that sins will perish, there's a definite work on to make sure that we believe that dead people aren't really dead. From the day in which I was a child, in which I watched relatively benign programming, although I would not call it benign, to this moment, we've watched a progression of the use of what we would have once called spiritualism, the dark side, to help solve murder mysteries and police scenes. We've seen uh, the manufacturing of all kinds of children programming to such to where the occult and the idea that when you die, you're not really dead, it's everywhere. I had somebody this week send me a trailer for the latest Disney movie called Soul. And if you watch the trailer, it looks as benign as benign could be, except it is a direct shot at the semblance of truth that is rapidly disseminating out of society, evaporating. It's the story of a musician who dies, but doesn't want to live as a disembodied soul, wants to come back to earth. So it appears now that even in what would have once been considered a generator of benign children programming, Disney, it appears that now there's a direct assault on the simplest teachings of the Bible about what happens when you die. And it's going to be creative and it's going to be funny. It's not going to be difficult, she writes, for the evil angels to represent both the saints and the sinners who died and to make these representations visible to human eyes. These manifestations will be more frequent and developments of a more startling character will appear as we near the close of time. Well, Disney's, Disney's uh, movie Soul is not of a terribly, well, it has a, a, a dynamic of a more startling character that they should now choose such theological topics to take up as what happens when you die. And yet it's still a cartoon. It's still an animation. Moving on, she writes, in testimonies to the church, the Babylon's fall is not yet complete. What does she mean by that? 
Quoting the scriptures, Revelation 14, she says she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Not until this condition, she writes in the Great Controversy, page 383 and 90, not until this condition shall be reached and the union of church and the world shall be fully accomplished throughout Christendom will the fall of Babylon complete, be complete. The change is a progressive one and the fulfillment, the perfect fulfillment of Revelation 14, 8 is yet future. It's important for us to understand that while we see the hand reaching across the gulf, whether it's an appointment with the Pope, with our Congress, or whether it's an appointment by an ambassador a generation ago by Ronald Reagan, we see this bridging of this gap. We've watched the anniversary of the 500th celebration, 500th year anniversary of the Reformation, and we've seen Protestants very desirous to minimize everything that distinguishes the connection between us and Rome. But the truth of the matter is, she is not yet completely fallen. The religious dynamic in our society is still met with a measure of scorn because secularism is still completely in the ascendancy. Another element that is written about in selected messages is that as the end approaches, the testimonies of God's servants will become more decided and more powerful. I should like to think that this is happening. It is certainly an appeal to all the ministers that might be listening to this presentation live or in a recorded form. God is calling upon you to be living sentinels filled with the Holy Spirit who preach messages of hope and a call to fidelity and faithfulness to Christ. Indeed, our churches have trended to nominalism. We've come to the place to where it appears we can argue about anything and are unified about little. This is not to be God is calling us to wake up. COVID-19 is certainly that call on a global level. Writing a manuscript release number three, number 305, she says, the time of trouble such as was not since there was a nation is right upon us and we are like the sleeping virgins. We need to awake and ask the Lord to place underneath us his everlasting arms to carry us through the time of trial before us. She'll go on to say in manuscript number 87, if ever there was a time when serious reflection becomes, is becoming of anyone who fears God, it's now when personal piety is essential. The inquiry should be made, what am I? And what is my work and my mission in this time? On which side am I working, Christ's side or the enemy's side? Yes, there are going to be many who, when this is over, are going to anticipate just going back to life as it was not knowing how quickly birth pangs can come in succession one after another. But friends, don't you like what she says when she talks about asking Jesus to wake us up and to place us in those everlasting arms and to carry us through the time of trial before us? You're not going to wander into a difficult and stressful situation. You're not going to potentially put your life your lifeline for food and security and safety. You're not going to be willing to lay that down unless you've learned to trust the hand of Jesus. There are many people who have new layers put in their life. Everything they're doing is virtual. I'm married to a teacher. You would have thought at some level that not having those 20-some children in the classroom would have simplified life. Instead, it's put multiple new layers of challenge into the ordinary. And if you're a parent, with children at home. You know about this as well because many of you are telecommuting as it were and taking care of responsibilities to keep a livelihood coming into your home as well as being mom and dad and now quasi-teacher as well. But this is a moment in which we should stop even on a day like this. And we should do some reflecting. As she says, what am I and what's my work and mission in this time? If ever there was a refocusing moment, this is the first of a global birth pang in a long, long time, certainly in my lifetime. And while 911 was a wake-up call and a challenge on the psyche and the experience of America, and while 2008 could have cascaded into destruction on a financial global scale, it did not. The pandemic is affecting lives all around the world and the economy. And by the way, I'll interject something here. In our world right now, especially in America, we have right-to-work laws, which has largely made labor unions much less powerful. But on the backside of this COVID-19 experience, it'll be curious to see what happens to the economy and how what she has to write about labor unions may come into place in ways we didn't anticipate before. 
If there's something we should be doing during this period of time, we should be strengthening our faith. She says, if the believers in the truth are not sustained by their faith in these comparatively peaceful days, what will uphold them when the grand test comes and the great, great decrees go forth against all those who will not worship the image of the beast and receive his mark on their forehead or in their hands? This solemn period is not far off. Instead of becoming weak and irresolute, the people of God should be gathering strength and courage for the time of trouble. How do you do that, friends? Times of perplexity are upon us, she writes. Men's hearts are failing them for fear for the things that are coming on the earth. But those who believe in God will hear his voice amidst the storm say, it's I, be not afraid. The question is, as we looked at the Sabbath school lesson and the inspiration of Scripture, Am I day by day coming to a place where I am focusing on the Word of God and hiding His Word in my heart? God wants us to actually venture out and do something for Him that stretches us beyond the provision of the arm and the hand of man. But we have homes, we have churches, and we have schools who will go no farther than the sight of a human being can see. The best strategist, the smartest person, the most influential man or woman in our midst. God is actually calling us to a faith journey, a prayer journey, and an administration of the Holy Spirit where we go farther than the human eye can see because we enter into the presence of the living Christ, the shepherd not only of our individual lives, but of our institutions, our corporate experience, our families of God. God is calling us to strengthen faith by remembering what he's done in the past. In reviewing our past history, she'll write in life sketches, Having traveled over every step of advance to our present standing, I can say, praise God as I see what the Lord has wrought. I am filled with astonishment and with confidence in Christ as our leader. We have nothing to fear for the future except that we shall forget the way that the Lord has led us in our past and his teachings. Listen, if all we do is move by sight, if all we have is human stratagem, if we don't cast a bigger net, if we don't look to do more in the name of Jesus, if we don't actually bathe the old methods in much prayer, prevailing prayer, and pray God, send us souls, send us your spirit, send us the money, send us the organization, send us the vision, and then cooperate wholeheartedly, how will we ever have chapters to look back on with the astonishment that Ellen White had? Those moments when she purchased, when she advised the purchase of Loma Linda, those moments when she saw, whether it was Bering Springs or Stoneham, Massachusetts or Lincoln, Nebraska. It's interesting. Go through this book, Last Day Events. And she has these places marked out. They're chapters. They're, they're rocks of remembrance. They're Ebenezer's reminding us that God was guiding. And did he draw us out of ourselves? Absolutely. We should be training our youth. We shall have to stand before magistrates and answer for our allegiance to the law of God to make known the reasons of our faith. And the youth should understand these things. I've actually heard people intimate that talking about the time of trouble with our youth was almost the equivalent of spiritual abuse. Now, I'd like to know from what perspective these discussions were held. There are people with no spiritual assurance who don't want to think or talk about these things because they are in all facets if essentially worldlings in nominal walks with Christ, in nominal churches. They have no spiritual confidence. They have no living faith. They are not in the Word of God. They are not carrying the cross. And they have no peace except the peace of circumstance, which they've created with the work of their own hands. At least so it appears. Even that's a gift from God. Our young people are actually be drawn into experiences where there's a spiritual stretch, where there's a little bit of faith required, and eventually the sinew, the fiber of their spiritual muscle is to grow. As a matter of fact, we know there's an army of youth to be rightly trained. They should understand these things. And when the older folks can no longer declare the truth, or when they're limited in their ability to speak because they've been shackled or thrown in prison, God is going to use these young people. But if they don't have a living experience with God or if they love the world in greater form and fashion than even their parents, which is how the, the, the dominoes tend to fall, it's how the ball tends to bounce, they should find themselves troubled by these things. God's children are to exercise the simplest faith knowing that God's alive, he's a powerful deliverer, and he answers those who call on him. We're not to borrow trouble, she writes. Many will look away from present duties they will look to present comfort. 
and they will be borrowing trouble in regard to the future crisis. This will be making a time of trouble beforehand, and we will receive no grace for any such anticipated troubles. God never intended that we worry about the future. What kind of dad would I be if I told my children about terrible things that were coming in the future, and I left them wondering about how it was going to turn out? It'd be a completely different scenario than if I said, don't worry, I'll be right there with you to deliver you in a mightier fashion than I've ever shown up to deliver you before. I think of that moment when Jesus was up on the mountain praying. He was praying for his disciples who were down in the boat after the feeding of the 5,000, and they were complaining that they could not make him king. Jesus just didn't get it. While they're complaining about him, he's praying for them. A storm comes on the lake to change their train of thought. Read it in Desire of Ages. Their thoughts were dark and stormy. God sent a real storm to take their dark and stormy thoughts and turn them to something different. When they see Jesus come down off that mountain, he looks like a ghost on the water. And he could have let them languish in their fears and teach them a good little lesson about critiquing him while he's praying for them. But as soon as they see him and they cry out, it's a ghost, he calls out, no, it's not, it's me. Don't be afraid. This is the message of the scriptures. What else should we be doing as we anticipate the coming of Jesus and what will be after COVID-19 passes? The servants of Christ are to prepare no set speech to present when brought before to trial for their faith. Their preparation is to be made day by day. This is the greatest concern I have in presenting this sermon. There are some people, I have a relative, absolutely convinced this is the end of the world. There are probably thousands out there who are wondering the very same thing. The problem is, is that fear motivates some semblance of attentiveness. When the fear subsides, the absence of genuine interest in the issues of the divine will be covered up again with the comforts and the conveniences of going back to normal. The truth of the matter is, God right now is seeking to awaken us. And he is seeking to help us make preparation. But the preparation is to be made day by day. Councils on the Sabbath school work, page 40. In treasuring up in their hearts the precious truth of God's word. In feeding upon the teachings of Christ. And through prayer strengthening their faith. And then when brought into trial, the Holy Spirit will bring to the remembrance the very truths that will reach the hearts of those who shall come to hear. God will flash the knowledge obtained by diligent searching of the scriptures into their memory at the very time when it's needed. If ever there was a day when we need to be more disconnected in this attention economy, it's today. The devil wants you to be so connected to everybody all the time that their likes and dislikes of your posts and your tags and your tweets all of this dynamic to where there is rarely a moment for you to reflect and to think, to actually encounter the living God. Every moment's filled. You're no longer able to be with the people you love. Don't worry. While they're working, they can be texting you. The truth of the matter is, is that God is desiring us to have some quiet. God is calling us to be putting the word in our minds. Keep a pocket Bible with you, she writes, and improve every opportunity to commit to memory its precious promises. She goes on to say in Testimonies of the Church, several times each day, precious golden moments should be consecrated to prayer and the study of the Scriptures. This was Daniel's method. It is the, it is, if it is only to commit a text to memory, that spiritual life may exist in the soul. The question we need to ask ourselves is, are we putting this wonderful these wonderful truths which will be a fortress against fear into our hearts and minds? Or are they so full, are our moments so filled up with what is sensual and superficial that we don't have time to do this? If you want to be ready for what's coming, she calls us to control our moral powers. The ability to give a reason for our faith is a good accomplishment, but if the truth doesn't go deeper than this, the soul will never be saved. The heart must be purified from all moral defilement. She writes, the mind must be preoccupied with sacred eternal things. I don't think this is what's happening in the lives of most of our people inside the Seventh-day Adventist church. Enoch is our example. Enoch was one who engaged the public but did not immerse himself in the experience of the public. 
The Bible and the spirit of prophecy make this clear. He did not want to lose the sense of sinfulness. Listen, friends, when we attend the places that unbelievers and wicked men have designed for entertainment, whether we attend it virtually or we attend it in person, we are being affected by the influence, the impress, and the social dynamic. If we want to be ready for what's coming, we're called to keep the Sabbath conscientiously, to be faithful in our tithes and offerings, and to set aside times for fasting and prayer. She writes, now and onward till the close of time, the people of God should be more earnest, more wide awake, not trusting their own wisdom, but the wisdom of their leader, capital L, that's Jesus. They should set aside days for fasting and prayer. Entire abstinence from, the, from food may not be required, but they should eat sparingly of the most simple food. Now, when it gets down to physical preparation, there are very few things she directs us to do, but she does call us to country living. You may not be called out of the city as of yet. When those Sunday laws are in agitation, that is your time to get up and get out. Until then, you're to be living there with a mission. In this time of waiting, we're also called to oppose Sunday laws. Friends, those Sunday laws are not much in agitation in our world, let alone in our country. Although there is an ascendancy, Poland, Germany, uh, these are modern societies where they've enacted them as of late. We are to seek the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to notice something. I'm almost done. We've not been told to hoard food. We've not been told to save money. We have been directed in spiritual preparation because the issues of the end will be a spiritual conflict. They will be about issues of faith and a knowledge of the Word. I love what she says about the Holy Spirit. She says, we need not worry about the latter rain. This is the upward look, 283. We need not worry about the latter rain. All we have to do is keep the vessel clean and right side up and prepared for the reception of the heavenly rain and keep praying. Let the latter rain come into my vessel is our prayer. Let the light of the glorious angel which unites with the third angel shine upon me. Give me a part in the work. Let me sound the proclamation. Let me be a co-laborer with Christ. Thus seeking God, let me tell you, he is fitting you up all the time, giving you grace. It sounds an awful lot like the day-by-day -day preparation. Friends, there is a work to do. She calls us to work for the cities. There's a work yet to be done. Then the angel will be bidden, let go, that the four winds may blow upon the earth. There will be a decisive time for God's children, a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Now is our opportunity to work. I want to leave you with this thought. The single greatest conspiracy in the scriptures was the underhand, twisted, and dark, devious plans of the devil to destroy the anointed one promised in the book of Genesis. Right from the very beginning, Satan was attempting to blind the people of Israel, make them caught up with wealth and human interests, sensual pleasure, convenience, comfort, ambition, all kinds of things. When Jesus was born, there was an attempt to destroy him with the Roman soldiers. When Jesus was 12 in the temple, the scorn of the scribes and the Pharisees began to be notable. When Jesus becomes a man practicing his ministry, he's dogged at every step. Spies, lawyers trying to trap him. Interestingly enough, all along the way, Jesus warns of what's coming, but never points to an effort or an attempt to receive intelligence from those who would be in the know of exactly how they're going to carry out his personal destruction, except he proclaims that he will be lifted up. He calls the future, he calls his present believers and his future believers to an embracing of the instrument that will be his death, his torture, his destruction, the cross. Jesus knows at times that his life is in, at least from a human point of view, a potential limbo. He's escaped different moments when they would have killed him. He needs no knowledge of what's going on behind the scenes, and he directs us to no detective-like work to discover 
what's on the dark side. He calls us to that excellent spirit. And when, he, when we come down even to the betrayal of his place and presence before the final Passover of his life, Judas himself, even though Jesus knows what he's about, that he's about to sell his friend for pieces of silver, Jesus goes into very little disclosure to the disciples except to say, I'll be betrayed by someone who sits at this table with me. He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He could have been fleeing for his life except that he understood that his father was guiding him into the crisis and would take him through it. Just like the Israelites were led down to Egypt by famine and remained there and were eventually oppressed as a symbol, as a precursor experience of God's ability to deliver, shown in the flesh, shown in the physical, in preparation for the spiritual. Indeed, friends, when we look at the life of Christ, he comes down to his last moments, and instead of trying to save himself or even his disciples, we find him seeking to save Judas as Judas comes to betray him with a kiss, and Jesus, in effect, says, Judas, I know what you're doing, but I'm appealing to you. Turn away now. You're not betraying me with a kiss, are you? Jesus goes all the way to the cross. He could have called those 10,000 angels. He could have delivered himself, destroyed the world, and set us free. But this is not what he did. He had that extraordinary spirit. He trusted in the guiding hand of his Father, which led him to the cross. Friends, we can't change what's happening about the elements of deliverance, the, the pangs of sorrow and anticipation of that deliverance that's coming. But I do know this. God does not intend for a moment that we focus on the dark side to understand the light side. Yes, there's laws written on books around this world that will be reenacted. That's exactly right. But our call is to focus on an encounter with Christ, a daily encounter in his word, an encounter for the lost. There is work for us to do. COVID-19 is not in all likelihood the beginning of the end. It's just another reminder that Jesus said the end was coming. And since God doesn't want anybody to be lost and that he warns us, let's accept it as a global wake-up call. What comes out on the other side, we don't 100% know. But the secularism still rampant in our society and the absence of the ramp up to the showdown in the spiritual arena gives us good hope that we might still have time to get ready and to get a world ready. Let's abandon the conspiracy thinking, put our hand in the hand of Jesus who walked into a trap that he knew was set for him, just like Daniel. But he went with perfect peace because the presence of his father was with him. Yes, friends, this is to be the beginning of a new focus for God's church. We can't assemble now, but when those bands are lifted, we ought to see God's churches full. We're busy. We've been busy with other things, but in this moment, we ought to be restructuring our priority system and making a greater intentionality about prayer, about the study of the Word, about the prayer meetings and the evangelistic events that are going on. That which is urgent but not important needs to be let go of. of that which trends to a preparation of peace of heart, mind, and soul for us and all we come in contact with. This should be the focus of our life. Training our young people to be ready to play their part. Being familiar with what the Bible and the spirit of prophecy says about what's coming in the future. But not afraid. Indeed, friends, let's not be sucked into the narratives of the secular-minded who know not the living presence of Christ and the comfort of that nail-scarred hand. Turn off the radio programs. Spend less time on the internet and come into an arena where the Spirit can impress you how He's leading you to higher ground, who you could be praying for and who you might reach. Indeed, this is to be the beginning of a new chapter of intentionality and focus for God's church. And by God's grace, we will enter in not only individually, but as families and with a corporate focus that takes us out of the nominal and puts us in the revived and growing posture of keeping our vessels upright and praying, Lord, send the Spirit into my life. Make me vibrant. Make me fruitful. Make me alive. Use me. Indeed, friends, 
The day's coming when no man can work, but it's not here yet. We're limited in the moment. When this birth pang passes, there'll be some measure of freedom. We need to do something with it. We need to decide now we're going to do something with it. We need to make the changes in our personal lives because, and our personal schedules because that's where the preparation for the time of the end is to be made. And then focusing again on God's cause, God's church, God's work in a lost world. We're to do what we can while we still have time. Not afraid. Praying that, Lord, put those everlasting arms underneath us and carry us through this time. But show us what it is you want us to do and who you want us to be. May God help us as we work to that end and we see in this moment a new beginning.